Acts chapter 19, starting at verse 21. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together, and with the workmen in similar trades, and he said to the men, You know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see in here, not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that God made with hands are not God's. And there is danger not only in this trade of ours that may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged, and they were crying out, Great is Artemis of Ephesus! So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in and among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion. Most of them did not know why they had even come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanting to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they cried with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the crowd clerk quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If, therefore, Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open, and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we are really in danger here of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Thank you, Father for an opportunity in your word now, and uh, I pray that uh, as we gather around it, you will um, allow us to enable us to drive us to a place where our hearts will become softened by it, our wills will become um, invigorated by it, where our minds would be transformed by it. Help us, Lord, as we make sense of this passage to make sense in a way that brings glory to you and helps us in our walk with you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. It's a lot of scripture to go through this morning, and it's, uh, it's uh, an event that's um, fairly well understandable at just uh, your own reading of the passage. And so what I am wanting to do is maybe take more of a look at a, two or three issues that jumped out of the page to me this morning. And they all circle around the life of faith and what it means to be a follower of Christ and some of the implications of that in our lives. Um, there's a sequence of events that Luke writes about here that... Um, uh, are, are, are helping us follow along a path, but without mentioning everything that happens. And, and uh, the main emphasis for Luke has been to tell us that 
Paul's ministry in Ephesus has been characterized by the word of God. That it's the word of God that has um, spread forth uh, from Asia so that, or from Ephesus, so that all in Asia, both Jews and Greeks, have heard about it. It's the word of God, as we saw last Sunday, that is growing strong, it's prevailing, and it's prevailing mightily in Ephesus and in all of Asia. And that's all that Luke is driving us to understand, is the centrality and the, and the, the power and the force of the word of God. But it's also woven in between that. There's the servants of, of God who proclaim the word of God, which are all of us. And one of those servants is the Apostle Paul. And it tells us here something that, that there's something going on in the Apostle's heart now. His focus is beginning to shift a little bit, as Luke reminds us. He's beginning to close things down in the city of Ephesus, and he's setting his sights on somewhere else. I think you know that. Sometimes you might be committed to a job, and you might be committed to a project or to a paper, and you're part the way through, and you're getting closer to the end, and all of a sudden you realize the end is almost there, and so you start making plans for the next project or for the next paper or for the next task at hand. So it's something that we all go through, and it's certainly something that uh, Paul was going through after his ministry in Ephesus. And Luke tells us so much when he writes, After these events, Paul then set his sights on Jerusalem and then Rome. And I think one of the things that it does remind me of, it's always good to have plans. It's never helpful to fly by the seat of our pants. We find ourselves getting into trouble most often when we do that. And so Paul had short-term plans and he had long-term plans. His short-term plan was to go down to uh, Jerusalem after a little bit of a trip around the churches, encouraging them. He wanted to get down to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. That was something that all Jewish men were, were called to do, and so he just wanted to get there. But there was something that was more of a sort of a mid-range plan for Paul that had been brewing in him, and it was a desire to take the gospel to Rome. Uh, from his point of view, Rome was the center of the world at that particular point. It was the place from which all sort of, Rome was the empire at that point. And so if Paul could get the gospel into Rome and transform Rome, Paul could transform the world by the gospel. And so he had this divine compulsion. He said, I must go and see Rome. Now there's a difference between saying, I must go and buy a cup of coffee on my way home and between I must tell my brother about Jesus Christ. There's a divine necessity behind this little word must. It's the same word that compelled Jesus to go to Jerusalem. I must go to Jerusalem because there I will suffer and die. Or of um, Jesus talking to Nicodemus, you must be born again. And so there's something that's stirring in Paul that is something of a divine stirring. And he's got to get himself to Rome because God is driving him there. But how does God do that? How does God move us in our lives? Well, I think one of the ways that he does it is by, um, by um, getting us to learn and to begin to walk in the Spirit. And one of the basic things that all Christians need to learn and understand is that a life of faith is characterized by walking in the Spirit. It's not walking in our own flesh. It's not walking in our own designs. But it's walking according to the leading of the Spirit of God. And so you read this right at the very verse, in, in verse 21. It says, After these events, Paul resolved in his spirit to go down to Jerusalem and then to go on to Rome. Uh, the New Living Translation um, gives it a, a little bit more of a force when it says, Paul, compelled by the Spirit, left Ephesus, made his way to Jerusalem, and then on to Rome. Paul's life was characterized by the leading and the guiding of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God that dwelt in him. If you were here with us a number of uh, weeks ago, we were looking at um, Acts chapter 16, and um, we see there how Paul was led by the Spirit. 
because he just had this driving passion to take the gospel to people. And so he wanted to go in one direction, and, and the, the Bible says he was forbidden by the Holy Spirit to go there. And so he changed course, and he started going another way, and it said that the Spirit of Christ would not allow him to go there. So he changed course, and he ended up in, in Troas, and that night he had a vision that he needed to go to Macedonia. And so Paul's life is one that we see, and we'll see this in a couple of weeks again. It was one that was directed and guided and led under the influence and the guiding of the Holy Spirit. Um, we, we find this as just a characteristic of the people of God. We see it most perfectly lived out in the life of Jesus. I don't understand all the implications of this, but Jesus' life was a life that was led under the guidance of the Spirit of God every second of his life. At the, after his baptism, we read that Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned to the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And we understand that when he went into the wilderness, that what he faced there was temptations. In other words, even Jesus didn't, didn't sort of um, take temptation lightly. That it was something that was part of the Spirit's um, necessity and leading in his life. And so he was led into the wilderness to be tested. There is also a, the fuller understanding of the impact on the Spirit's life, in, in, on Jesus' life um, in Isaiah. Where we read there that the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Referring to Jesus. Listen to the description of the Spirit of the Lord and what the Spirit of the Lord gives to Jesus. It says it's the Spirit of wisdom and understanding. Who of us in our daily life does not need wisdom and understanding? We face situations that are way beyond our comprehension, way beyond our knowledge, things that are are far more complicated than we can ever imagine. It's the Spirit that rested on Jesus, the Spirit of wisdom and of understanding. It's also a spirit of counsel and of might. It's a spirit that advised him and directed him. It was a spirit of power that led him and guided him. It's a spirit of knowledge and of fear of the Lord. It was the spirit that led Jesus to walk in the ways of the Lord. It was the spirit that led Jesus to walk according to the laws of God so that Jesus could say, everything that I say, everywhere that I go, I do my Father's will perfectly. That is because he was led by the Spirit of God. And then it says, and he shall delight in the fear of the Lord. As we are led by the Spirit, we walk in the fear of the Lord. And and we know that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so, loved ones, I think in my own heart life, if Jesus needed to have the fullness of the Spirit and to be led and guided by the fullness of the Spirit, how much more do I need to rely on the Spirit to lead me and to guide me and direct me? We find that in a lot of other places in Scripture. There's uh, in Acts particularly, we find of men like Stephen and Barnabas and uh, those six men that were chosen to, to distribute food to the widows. It says of each of those individuals that they were full of the Spirit. What does that look like? Well, I think in part being full of the Spirit means they were recognized as being wise. They were recognized as making sound decisions. They were recognized as walking in a way that honored God. And so as people looked at them, they said, they must be full of the Spirit. We see the Spirit's leading and guiding in their life. And so I think that you can look at somebody and you can say, that person is led of the Spirit or that person is full of the Spirit because of the decisions they make and the way they carry themselves and the, and the patterns of their life. We read um, uh, in, in the Scripture that it says, of all those who desire to live godly lives, that we are not to be drunk with wine, for this is debauchery, but to be filled with the Holy Spirit. This is something that is uh, of every one of us as Christians. We ought to have a life that is characterized by 
constantly being filled with the Spirit. And we wonder, well, what does that look like? Well, there's a lot of ways that looks like. Um, part it looks like a power to witness and evangelize. We saw that in Acts 1, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will receive power to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Judea and the ends of the earth. As we are filled with the Spirit, we have boldness. And so part of the filling of the Spirit and the fullness of the Spirit and leading of the Spirit is a boldness with the gospel. Part of it, though, is a transformation in our character that, that we begin to shed those things of our, of our past life and we begin to put on the things of our present and our future life. We talk of it as the fruit of the Spirit. Paul in Galatians gives us a summary of nine of them, but it's not an exhaustive list. Where he tells, tells there that those that are filled by the Spirit, those that are led by the Spirit, are characterized by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those are incredible characteristics. And against those, Paul says, there is no law. You can't define, by, you can't tell somebody to love according to laws. It's something that is a transformation that takes place in us. You can't command patience. It's something that goes beyond the law. Same with humility or compassion or meekness or forgiveness. These are all aspects of what it means to be led by the Spirit. And so being led by the Spirit means that, that, that our character is transformed by the Spirit. I think Paul sums it up in various ways in Galatians when he says we walk by the Spirit or we are led by the Spirit um, or we live by the Spirit. In other words, it's a, it's a conscious decision to set aside our preferences, our priorities, our desires and to say, God, would you guide me in your way, in your preferences, in your desires for my life? It's a, it's a shaping of our lives by the Spirit's influence. And that happens as we pray. It happens as we read the Word of God. It, it happens as we discern the impulses of our hearts and we realize that they're not in keeping with Scripture. And so we just pray, God, would you shape my heart through your Spirit in a way that is pleasing to you? There's a prayer which um, uh, the psalmist uh, uh, utters in Psalm 143 where he says, Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. Isn't that something that we could all benefit from praying every day? Just, God, let your good spirit guide me on level ground. In other words, may the fullness of the Spirit of God guide and direct my lives. And so, as we look at this life of faith, as we look at what it means to be a Christian, we don't live it in our own strength. We don't live it in our own wisdom. We don't live it by our own sort of trying, we live it under the compulsion and leading and the guiding of the Holy Spirit. And there's a specific area which relates to Paul, which I, I just want to highlight. And that is this area of the gospel. Because not all of us are full-time missionaries. Not all of us are full-time pastors. Not all of us are full-time evangelists. Our calling might be to be, to be an electrician or to be a plumber or to be a doctor or to be a nurse. Uh, it, it could be uh, any number of things still need to be led by the Spirit with a gospel focus. And so one of the things that I see in the life of the Apostle Paul is that he always had plans for the gospel. He always had in mind who he needed to talk to the gospel about, who he needed to share the good news with, another city, another town. He needed, he needed to go there with the good news of the gospel. And I think in our lives, do we have a plan for the gospel? Do you have a plan for who you need to share the gospel with? 
Do you sort of have it in your mind, okay, the Spirit of God has really impressed upon me that I need to go to this member of my family, or I need to talk to this person that I go to school with, or this person that lives next door to me, or I need to go to this city and, and meet a bunch of friends that I used to know and share the gospel. Do we have a Spirit sort of led plan for that? One of the things that we've been doing as a congregation, and I don't know if, um, I hope many of you are doing it, is we have been praying for three people to come to faith in Christ. Um, we started at Easter, and we want to make it by this Easter. I looked at my list this morning, and I'm able to tick off one person on my list of three people. And it's a cause of great celebration, but there are people that, that we all prayed together, and I prayed for these three people, and I felt that the Spirit of God said, you need to talk to these three people. I spent a great deal of time with this one individual. I wasn't the one that led them to Christ, but I was told a couple of weeks ago that they had come to faith in Christ. That's great rejoicing in my heart. I was chatting. Yeah, it is. It is exciting. But it, it's a plan. I was thinking um, about this. Uh, there's a gentleman in our congregation who, uh, in the next week or so, he's going out to Edmonton or to, to, I won't say the town. I don't want to give him away. But he's going. It's not Edmonton, by the way. It's farther than that. It's one of the provinces beyond that. But he's going there. And he's going to meet with his family. He's going to meet with some of his children, some of his grandchildren. And the motivation for him going is he just feels compelled by the Spirit of God that he needs to share the gospel with them. And so he's been asking a few of us to pray that he would specifically have opportunities to share the gospel. I believe that that is a resolve in the Spirit. That this, 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 this couple has felt the compulsion of the Spirit of God to take the gospel to that particular group of people at that particular time in that particular city. And that's what we see in the Apostle Paul. So my question to all of us is we ought to be led by the Spirit. But do we have a, are we, are we aware of the Spirit's leading as it relates to the gospel? Do you have people that you really feel resolved in the Spirit that you need to share the gospel with? Or a place that you need to go? I would encourage you, if you don't, to say, Spirit of God, would you show me in my life where the harvest is right? Because as your word says, the harvest fields are ripe unto harvest, but the laborers are few. Send me, I'll go. And so there's this resolve in the spirit that is part of Paul's life. And so just in general, um, uh, that's, I think, one of the aspects of the Christian life is that, that we ought to be led by the Holy Spirit in general and in specific ways. The second thing that I just want to um, draw our attention to is that the life of faith, characterized by walking in the spirit, will eventually involve conflict. I hope we understand that as, as followers of Jesus Christ. Sometimes I'm, I'm troubled by the fact that we present becoming a follower of Jesus Christ as your life will become wonderful and you'll never have any more troubles in your life again. It's such a misrepresentation of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. There is no life like it, but if you walk with Christ any length of time, you will face conflict because of your commitment to the way. Why? Because the kingdom of God is opposed to the kingdom of Satan. The kingdom of darkness is opposed to the kingdom of light. That's just the way that it is. And so when you become a Christian, you become part of the kingdom of God. You become part of the kingdom of light. And it's just natural that you are going to bump up against areas of conflict with the old kingdom that you used to belong to. And we see that here because of the way. It says in verse 23 there that at that time, there arose no great disturbance because of the way. Um, uh, in other words, there was conflict. And this was 
big conflict. Why? Because of the way. And what is the way? The way is the Christian life. The way is, the, is how Luke characterizes what it means to follow Jesus Christ. He uses it four times, at least in the book of Acts, and this is the third that, and it, applies, it implies a lot of things. The way is the way of salvation. And as we know, we believe that the Scripture says that Jesus Christ said, I am a way. Yeah, Harvey got it. I see him shaking his head. No, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Automatically, I see in that conflict. So there's, there's, there's conflict because of the way of salvation. There's conflict in just the life that we now live. You, you read Ephesians, or, um, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the White, uh, on, the, on the mountain. You will see how the way of the kingdom is so contrary to the way of the dark kingdom. Um, oh, what was, that? what was I called um, the other day? Oh, it'll come to me. I'll, I stop in the middle of my sermon. I'll go, oh, that's it. Um, it it'll make sense to you. Anyhow, there's, <laughs> this is what goes on in my head. So, so this, this way is in conflict. As it's a way of salvation. Um, it's a explicit. It's, it's an exclusive way. And this is what I think we understand. I, I mentioned that um, when I mentioned Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It automatically puts us in opposition to those who see there's another way. Or who believe there's many ways. And as followers of the way, we say, no, there is only one way to the Father. And that is through Jesus Christ. There are many places that we could go this morning to frame this. Um, the one that uh, they they'll maybe take us to is in, in Matthew um, chapter 7. Listen to the description. This is, this is as, as simple as it gets. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide... And the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many. So there it's talking about one way. It's a broad way. It's, 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 it's one that many enter, but its end is the way of destruction. And then Jesus says, For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. There is a conflict between the broad way and the narrow way. There is a contrast between the ends of those two ways. One is the end of destruction. One is the one ends in life. And so we, when we talk about the way, it's naturally going to result in conflict. It comes in all different ways. And I'll just lightly mention this because I, I don't want to get off track too much. But you understand this conflict. If you become a Christian, you already know something of this conflict internally. You do, don't you? Uh, it, because you have this battle now that's going on inside of you. You have the way that, that you know is the right way. You have the way that is the kingdom of God. But you have the residual impact of the flesh. You have the influence of the world around you. And have the evil one himself that is in conflict now. And so the scripture talks about this war that is waged within us. And in fact, Romans chapter 7 describes the fact that the things that I want to do, I don't do. And the things that I don't want to do, I do do. Man, I'm a mess. That's the conflict. The moment that you enter into the Christian life, you are going to begin to feel this internal conflict. But it's not just an internal conflict. It's an external conflict. Because the, the, the life of the Christian is opposed to the world around us and everything in it. And we see this outlined in 
I can just give you a couple. There are so many more that, that I could give, but we speak, Christians, those who follow in the way, we speak about the inherent value of every single life. From the moment of conception to the moment one takes their last natural breath. That puts us in conflict with the values in the world around us. We speak of male and female, unique but distinct in God's eyes. We speak of sexual relations only within a covenant marriage between one man and one woman. Is that in conflict with the world around us? We speak of a moral law that is outside of ourselves given to us by God. The world speaks of a moral law that comes from within, and whatever feels good, do it. What's true for me is true for me. What's true for you is true for you. Does that lead to conflict? Absolutely, it does. We speak of a world created and spoken into existence by the spoken word of God. The world speaks of a universe that has come into existence over billions of years of time and has just happened to bring into being what we experience today. We talk of heaven and hell and accountability to God who created us. All of these are points of conflict. And so when you walk in the way, it's only a matter of time and you're going to bump up against someone who will say, that's a bunch of hooey. I don't believe that at all. You're nuts. You're threatening me. You're pushing me around. I don't want to hear that. So the Christian life led by the Spirit of God is a life that will result in conflict. You see this all through the book of Acts. Why was Stephen, Stephen stoned? Because he conflicted with the Jewish leaders. Why was Peter and Silas thrown into jail? Because they conflicted with the people of the town. Why was Paul and his partner beaten with rods and thrown into jail? Why was Paul stoned and left for dead and dragged out of his city? Because going in the way conflicts with the world around us. I just want to say that by way of encouragement, not discouragement, loved ones. I don't want you to be surprised when you bump up against trouble. It's just part and parcel of walking in the narrow way which leads to life. But there's a, there's a benefit of that. And we'll get to that in a minute because eventually in many people that conflict can be resolved and other people enter into the way. Um, there's a couple of points, a place in which the conflict is met here. And I just, um, I just want to touch on them so briefly. In fact, I'm, I'm just going to say them and I want to get to the last point. You notice here that, that uh, Demetrius, and you can read this, he's ticked off because the way conflicts with his economic well-being. And Paul wasn't even going out as a way to speak against the temple of Diana or the temple of Artemis. He was just speaking to people about Jesus Christ. And as they came to faith in Christ, all this stuff started to fall off. And they realized, oh, there's no sense in worshiping at the temple. There's no sense in buying silver shrines anymore. There's no sense in having spells and incantations. I'm going to destroy them and I'm not going to buy them anymore. And so it was just a natural transformation that was taking place in the hearts and lives of people, transformed by the power of God, that they started to follow in a different way. But that caused economic hardship for those who relied on their business. A second point of opposition that they ran into was an opposition of worship. Here, here um, not only did Demetrius say, listen, our economic well-being is at stake, but our worship well-being is at stake. He says, because if we're not careful here, what Paul is saying is that there is no God but God alone. And that if that happens, there is a real danger that the God that we worship, Artemis, is going to go into oblivion. Well, that's one of the conflicts that comes when we walk in the way. 
that it becomes evident. And again, Paul wasn't out there bashing um, the, the goddess Diana. And I think we need to understand that. Being Christians don't, doesn't mean we run around and bash everything. Evangelism is not negative, it's positive. All Paul was doing, he was saying, listen, there is a God that you've never heard about. He is the God that created the heaven and the earth. All other gods are not gods at all because they leave to slavery, because they can't help you, because they don't offer you anything. The only God that can help you, the only God that can offer you anything is the living God who made heaven and earth and made you and you need to worship him. And as a result of that, people were leaving their idolatrous ways and committing to the God of heaven and earth. And so we see these conflicts being met in, in, in the economic well-being of people. We see them being met in the worship practices of people. And so it's just natural as we live a life of faith that we are going to bump up against conflict. Not because we're looking for it, but because we're declaring the truth. And sometimes the initial response of the truth is offense. The final point that I want to make this morning is is this, and it makes sense to me. I, I hope it will make sense to you. It's the call to follow Christ in the way is a difficult road. It's a call to exclusivity. Initially, not all are ready to embrace Christ. I say initially because after reading the last few chapters in Acts, we begin to see that people come to faith over time. I think sometimes we... We have got it into our minds that as people who witness and share the gospel to people that we witness once, if there's no result, I guess I must have failed or I guess God doesn't want to see them into his kingdom, so I'll go on to the next person. I don't believe that that's how God brings people into his kingdom. There are some, yes, who the very first time they hear the gospel, they just respond with overwhelming acceptance of Christ. But, you know, there are people who are thick-headed, there are people who are sin-soaked. There are people who have no desire. They have never heard of God before. And the first time they hear the gospel, some are just, wow, what is this? You know, whoa, I've got to give up my life of sin? And, and initially, it's shock. But, but you notice Paul's method. He reasons with them. He persuades them. He argues with them. And not just for one hour, but for the course of, Three years he was in Ephesus. Or two years he was in Corinth. He was persistent. He was, he was like a dog with the bone. He was there until people basically stoned him through and in jail or accept what he had to say. He said, but you need to hear this. You need to understand this. Let me tell you more. I hear what you're saying, but listen to this. And I think, loved ones, all that I'm saying here is that we need to be committed to the long haul. We need to see people not just as projects, if I can say it that way, but as people who need to hear about Jesus Christ, people who we need to be patient with, people who we need to hear their arguments, and then we need to come back and say, well, this is my response to those arguments. And we need to work with them over time, no matter how long it takes. Because not everyone responds to the gospel immediately. It takes time to break down the barriers in people's hearts. It takes time to break down the walls of the kingdom of evil. It takes time to have the truth of God's word penetrate into the hearts and lives of people. Sometimes when people initially hear the gospel, they say, well, that's too much for me. I have a book on the shelf, and it's a book I would never give to somebody who was just interested about Christ, but I would, I would maybe share some of the things with them. But it's, it's ten things I wish Jesus never said. And these are 
hard sayings of Jesus about the cost of discipleship. About the, what it means to walk in the narrow way. And sometimes as people hear that, they initially respond in a, in a, in a, in a less than positive way. They say, I can't do that. I can't give up my family for Christ. I can't give up my pleasures for Christ. I can't deny myself for Christ. I can't follow in that path of obedience because that's not what I want right now. I want to have a few outs. I want to have a few alternatives. And so as people think about the demands of Christ initially, they might say, no, that's just not what I want. But as the Spirit of God speaks to them and works in their hearts, all of a sudden they begin to realize that that's everything I want. That's everything that I need. And I will commit to this path of no return. I will commit to a single loyalty to Christ. I will deny everything and everyone else in order to follow Christ. But that may take a few months. I think we can learn some lessons from our Heavenly Father in this way. That our Heavenly Father, I think, knows so well the human heart. I don't know about you, but I, uh, and I would risk this, but I won't this morning, but I would love to just say by a show of hands, how many, time, how many people here came to Christ the very first time somebody told you about Christ? Two. They say that it takes, on average, ten times of people witnessing. I, don't, I had a really thick skull, and it took me years to finally come to the realization where God opened my heart to see the beauty of Christ. Are you not glad God is patient with you? I was reading some texts about this which describe the way of God with us. It says, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord. So turn and live. Oh, what a beautiful invitation. God's not out to get us. God's not out for our hurt. Contrary to what many people say, He is a God of compassion and mercy. Turn to me and live, He says. In another place, He says that He was in Christ, reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Why? Because He had taken their trespasses and He had put them on Christ. And so God is out there pleading with us, reconciling with us, drawing us to Himself through Jesus Christ. There's another verse that says that there is this compelling reasonableness about God. And I love this about, about God. In Isaiah, he says, come now. And I like that. It, it seems like there's been conflict and there's been bumping of heads. And sometimes I think about this in marriage. And there's been tension between a husband and wife. And finally, they, oh, come now. Let's just sit down and let's work this puppy out. And I think that's what God kind of saying. He says, come now. He says, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they can be white as snow. They are red, though they are red like crimson, they shall be white like wool. There is a reasonableness to God. And then there's a patience to God as He draws us to Himself. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Is that our heart? With our neighbors and with our brothers and sisters, our mothers, our fathers, our grandchildren, patience. We take a smack on the side of the head and we come back next week or next family dinner and we take a risk again and we say, I want to tell you about Jesus. I want to share the gospel with you. God is patient with us. We ought to be patient with others. I think I think about God's desire to be found. Paul talks about this so clearly in, in, in Acts chapter 17 where he says there that God has, let me read it so I don't get it wrong. He says that from one man he made every nation of man to live on the face of the earth. 
having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Do you know that? Again, we said this so many times, but that God has determined, God, our God has determined that every single person that is here today, he has determined that you be here. And one of the primary reasons that he has determined that you be in this place today and living in this community today is because this is the most easiest way or this is the most convenient way or this is the more likely way that you will find him. Because he says that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way to God and find him. Because God is not far from us. God has put you here so that you might find him. And then his invitation. I love his invitation. It's not a narrow invitation. It's not an invitation if you're good enough. Or if if you've never done anything really, really bad, then it's for you. Or I know your parents, and you know, because of your parents, I think you've got to be a good person. No, his invitation is turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. That ought to be our appeal, loved ones, as we go out and as we speak to people. People may initially resist, but just as God doesn't give up on us, we ought not to give up on them. And we see that demonstrated in Ephesus that Paul stuck to it for. And as a result, it says, everyone in Asia heard the word of God. As a result, we hear the word of God prevailed mightily. May God, by his spirit, direct us to be concerned about one or two or three people or one place. May God give us the ability then to be long-termers. And to say, I will keep at it until I feel God giving me release and going on to another spot. And may we see God move mightily in our families and in our communities. Let's pray.